everyone. Welcome to another episode of Debatable. I'm Kyle. I'm your host for today. And joining me is Rafi Perez. He was the motion contributor for Debatable Open 2022's Health Round. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Kyle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited to have you. First of all, like, tell us about yourself. What is your fascination with health motions? Okay. Um, so, hi, everyone. I'm Rafi. Well, I am a second-year medical student. Um, by virtue, I guess, of my studies, uh, we really have to dig up and read up on literature for a lot of our clinical case discussions. So we come across things like the Tuskegee trials, or even quite recently, like uh, several weeks ago, we just had a very good discussion about organ transplant ethics. And I really find these things interesting because they directly relate to the human body. Um, so it's really beyond the, the sort of the literal healthcare that you see that, oh, we're going to give you a pill. There are larger... Um, interesting discussions about healthcare as well that I think deserves attention. So yeah, um, health. Health is a right. Your daily reminder. <laughs> yeah, health definitely is a right. But I feel like there is a misconception with regard to health motions because a lot of people sort of think that, oh, if I'm against someone with a background in the sciences, I have a disadvantage, stuff like that. So what do you think is something important about health and science motions that debaters should keep in mind when encountering these kinds of topics, especially if they don't come from that kind of background. So I guess the first thing would be to note how health and the field of medicine and even science really change all the time. Um, so this is very apparent when we talk about the current situation like COVID-19. Um, several months ago or even a year ago, it was thought that it's only spread by a certain method that is uh, little droplets uh, spread the infection. But now it's heavily accepted that it's also airborne. Um, so I think part of approaching health motions is to generally be aware of current trends. Um, of course, reading journals would be great, but it's it might be too nerdy for some. So general news sites are going to be your friend. But also, I think a lot of it is observing your community as well, because a lot of um, trends in medicine also relate to the community. So the prevalence of infections will differ from country to country. So having that sort of background or that observation or that genuine curiosity about what's happening around your community, what, what kinds of diseases people are getting around you, is it purely hypertension or obesity, or are there signs of infection somewhere, would um, be part and parcel of your armament when approaching health motions. The second thing I want to point out is, I think that um, science and health are very interlinked. And um, if you look at it, a lot of the advances in science actually relate to the guidelines in medical practice and also policies in public health. So in med, we call this from bench to bedside. So by bench as in the laboratory bench, and the bedside, of course, is the clinical encounter. So I do think that health motions tend to go a step further from science motions and try to apply these scientific concepts on a social level, on a multifactorial level as well. The first motion for the Debatable Open 2022's health round um, is about rapidly aging societies. So it was defined here as a, a society that has a median age that is continuously getting older because of increasing life expectancies and decreasing birth rates. So examples would be Japan and Italy. So the motion was about whether in those rapidly aging societies, whether the medical community should prioritize attempts to do anti-aging. The first thing that really stuck out to me is the fact that this motion reference, references Japan and Italy as societies with rapidly aging populations, demographic winters and stuff like that. And this motion implies that it's something that we should do something about or at the very least be worried about. Um, so we currently have a lot of frontiers about regenerative medicine and uh, things like advances in stem cell research, which are general applications on the elderly population um, because of the sentiment that uh, the elderly population is very vulnerable and we have to take care of them. But secondly, I would note, um, I agree with the sentiment that uh, health motions also deserve some sort of spotlight in our debating circuit. And one aspect that I really wanted to explore was the idea of how healthcare changes um, depending, uh, sorry, depending on the um, age group that you're talking about, um, because the kinds of management and the kinds of treatments really change from group to group. So you have your pediatric group, you also have your uh, sorry, pediatric group as in the younger population. Uh, you also have the adult population and you also have elderly population. And um, 
as we all know, like the, uh, in societies that's rapidly aging or generally old societies, there are a lot of issues about what it means to be productive, to be a productive citizen that contributes to your national economy. So I wanted to explore that idea. So what can we do to aid in these populations which face this impending problem of having too little young people to take care of the extremes of age in these contexts? So that's generally um, my inspiration behind the motion. So aside from that being your inspiration, um, on government side, you want people to defend anti-aging, like, again, reversing biological deterioration. Um, my question now is, what would be sacrificed in the road to prioritizing this kind of research over others? Like, what would be the trade-off that you would expect here? Okay, so by prioritize, of course, you will really divert resources from other research projects um, and focus those into reversing the aging process. So if some people would say that this is with immortality, then in a way, it's really uh, towards that um, direction because you're looking for ways to stop the destruction of your cells. This means then that you have less resources because you know the medical community have um, limited funds to operate under based on the state and based on research grants as well. So you have less funding for things like primary care, for newer surgical techniques, or even focusing on infectious diseases, um, which can arguably be relevant in today's context as well. And this then means that your treatments and your advancements in those areas will also lag behind. And um, this is sort of a unique thing for government teams to defend because historically or in most systems, um, the risk is not really stratified or there's not much priority um, given over certain age groups. So the research that you will see is really, yes, they can be stratified between different age groups, but there's no premium or preference for one age group over another. So the question really is about what the priority in these rapidly aging societies should be for the medical community. So on Gov, you want to make it so that, I suppose you view it as a problem, a rapidly aging society, you view it as a problem that should be solved or like there's an impending crisis that will happen that we need to do something about. So given that, especially on government, how would you characterize these societies, these rapidly aging societies, as something that poses some sort of danger? So in essence, what I wanted to ask is, why are we focusing on these societies? How do these societies differ from any other society that is not having a rapidly aging um, you know, population? So the first thing, you already mentioned it, it's the concept of demographic winter. So with progressively increasing old ages and the societies of these like Japan, this then mean, uh, yeah, this means that there is going to be significantly less younger people who will eventually carry the burden. And um, usually the middle ages or uh, the, the adult population, which is significantly lessened in these rapidly aging societies. In normal populations, they are the ones who take care of both the younger groups, the extremely young, as well as the older groups or the, the elderly population, essentially, all the while taking care of the economy, all the while having labor or having remittances and all of those good state functions. So that is the uh, first problem that's faced in these rapidly aging societies. It's the potentiality of like not having a productive population that will take care of the state. The second then is, um, since you have a lot of elderly individuals, this also means that it's increased burden in your healthcare system because having an old population means that you have more people prone to a lot of diseases that are progressive. So this looks like your organ damages, like your kidney failure, your hypertension, and even your diabetes. Um, so if you compare it to normal younger populations, which focus more on like the genetic defects or even uh, the other diseases like infections, those are more manageable. If you look at the diseases which plague a lot of the older populations, they're usually end stage already and it contributes a lot of suffering in those societies. And of course, like uh, the medical community would want to alleviate suffering. So that is also a problem that we can address with the policy. So given that those are the problems that you want to address, what different arguments would you therefore run for government side? Okay, so very similar to um, those characterizations as well. Um, one thing would be to talk about why aging is an inherent burden in terms of disease. Um, so you can sort of look at it as a disease in itself. Um, so if you look at aging, it universally increases the likelihoods of 
developing other diseases um, because of things like, you know, you have lower immunity and your physical defenses are more fragile. Your bones become more brittle, your heart becomes weaker, etc. So that's one problem that this policy is trying to alleviate because you directly combat aging through these forms of research. Um, and if you have the knowledge or the, the background about telomere research and um, research into biological deterioration, then there are concrete advances towards, the, uh, towards these. They are actually able to reverse the aging process or lengthen the telomeres, which is important in reversing aging. Um, another thing that you can talk about would be how, like as I mentioned earlier, a lot of health motions also transcend to the social level. So you can talk about how you are able to redignify the older population as well. You, you can provide them the chance um, to be productive or to be participative in society again. Um, a lot of times, older populations usually find it difficult to um, return to a stable growth pattern when it comes to the population pyramid. Um, and you would usually need massive rep repopulation efforts to return that uh, level of productivity to normal. And at the same time, on a subjective level, a lot of these older individuals really feel left out or they feel like they've been abandoned or forgotten by society. So this is also a policy that sort of reinvigorates them and says that, well, you're still part of the society, you can contribute in XYZ reasons. And finally, um, and I think this is the uh, more the, the cooler argument in my opinion, um, you can talk about derivative benefits as well. So if you look at the advancements in telomeres and in stem cells, there's a lot of diseases which actually rely on the aging process and degeneration. So you can look at diseases which destroy your nerve fibers like Parkinson's or even cancer or even, again, osteoporosis. So you having a better understanding of the process of these cells being destroyed, which is aging, also helps in the treatment or in the innovations in these other disease entities, which I think is very important, especially um, in rapidly aging societies. So yeah, that's generally for government. The idea of derivative benefits. Basically, what you're saying is because we have this research into anti-aging, it helps us treat other conditions as well. How, how does it actually do that? Like, I do understand, like, debaters can probably say that anti-aging research can help us understand Parkinson's. It, it can help us understand osteoporosis. But can you help us with the more technical aspects of that? Because I can imagine someone saying, oh, that's too assertive. That's too assertive. Can you help us with the logic of what is it about anti-aging that leads us to better treatments in those other uh, conditions as well? Okay, um, so I will try my best to be as succinct as possible. So when we talk about diseases, I guess one of the misconceptions that people would have is that one disease has one cause. For example, um, tuberculosis or pneumonia, it's caused by a bacterium that infects your lungs. When in fact, Diseases are very complex and they're usually interlinked as well. And there are a lot of overlaps. So, for example, when we talk about, um, again, my example earlier, tuberculosis. So it's not just infection that causes you to cough up, to have um, these symptoms of fever, etc. But if your immune system, for example, is compromised or it's sort of weak, then you are more prone to get these symptoms and you are more prone to get this disease. So now we're talking about, um, uh, it's not just like the infection again, you can also have other factors to it. And if you look at it, aging inherently will weaken your immune system because of the deterioration that we talked about earlier. So in a way, aging also causes the tuberculosis and it's really part of the entire mechanism as to how the disease proliferates. And it's generally the same for um, other diseases. So, for example, even in hypertension, right, um, one might think that hypertension is just because you like eating fatty foods or you don't really like exercising, but aging might have an influence on that as well. When we talk about um, how the cells respond to these factors or to these behaviors like the, the bad diet or even the uh, lack of exercise. So it generally will destroy your immune system. It will contribute to the development of high blood pressure because of a number of mechanisms as well behind the cellular and the molecular level of it all. So that's how I would um, approach it. Um, it might seem a bit abstract or vague, um, but with a good 
set of examples which are like easier to understand as a judge or as a debater like uh, again tuberculosis or um the diseases which destroy uh, which rely on a weak immune system i think it's the closest or the um easiest way to relate it to aging because you know aging weak immune system disease so yeah that's that's my insight on that yeah so you don't really need to know like the the actual academic papers and stuff you don't need to cite them you just need to be able to find like accessible knowledge and then sort of just link them together so i i hope that for people who are listening i hope that that explanation from rafi sort of like helps you understand that even if you don't have a lot of technical knowledge about um the motion for example you can still find a way to argue these really good things um but since it seems like there are a lot of benefits to this policy so it leads me now to my questions about opposition because what would the counter model or counter policy be here for opposition okay um so it would generally depend on the again the the matter of the opposition team but for me i would go with an approximation of status quo in that you don't have an age based preference or a premium um so in a lot of systems there's more or less equal funding for children for adolescents for adult and elderly research um but you usually allocate funding based on the different fields or the different sets of diseases rather than the different groups of age so um you have different funding for internal medicine uh, you also have funding for surgery for neuroscience etc instead of like giving credence to one age group over another even if it is a rapidly aging society so that's generally what my counter model would be so it's not like let's focus on a particular age group let's talk about like fields so that i don't know like you can say that it's more inclusive like that am i correct in thinking that that would be the strategy for opposition like let's try to be more inclusive let's not just focus on old people here yes uh, that's exactly right and i think it's also partly because um the the landscape of medicine is very unpredictable right so you don't really know um when certain diseases take over other diseases in a certain context on a, or in a certain state so the the goal of the medical community um uh, which can be framed by opposition of course is to be as holistic as possible and is to hedge the healthcare risks as much as possible and you know i'm um, having equal funding would probably do that in up so based on that counter policy what arguments can be run on opposition to beat up and also um defend that counter that counter model okay um so the first would be to try to minimize the urgency that we sort of painted already earlier um so you can argue that you know as opposed to other disease entities um and even if everything's interrelated aging actually takes a long period of time to develop into a lot of the diseases we talked about um so and usually these diseases like even hypertension or even diabetes can be screened at an earlier time um there's already a lot of research into that into early screening because they rely on lifestyles instead of random factors like the infections that we talked about earlier as well and you also have more preventive care um when we talk about age based diseases um but if you compare it with um other disease entities like emergency or even intensive care cases like stroke or even heart attacks um yeah aging will always be a factor there um but there are other underlying reasons for diseases actually outside of aging so um again it might seem a bit niche but um it's really an approach into trying to combat or mitigate this urgency that gov is going to talk about so flipping the example of hypertension earlier so sure old age factors into that but arguably the primary reasons for high blood pressure or these kinds of lifestyle diseases is again um bad diets or the sedentary lifestyle lack of exercise and a general lack of public infrastructure and education for people in terms of prevention um so that is one line of attack so even if you target aging as a root cause of a problem you have other root causes of problems um when we talk about the diseases of the elderly population in rapidly aging societies that probably will not be looked into because of the preference so this is exclusive to you having an unequal level of funding because in opposition again it's more holistic you can look into different fields of inquiry different specializations 
in research and in medicine, which allows you to prevent that or stop that from happening. Um, another thing that you can argue would also be on a social level. So we talked about earlier about how this sort of dignifies the elderly population. Um, but now for opposition, you can argue that it's detrimental for younger populations as well. So now you have more treatments in the best case of Gov for older populations. But now your younger populations will be far more vulnerable because a lot of the innovations only concentrate into the elderly age group. Um, and the reasoning behind this is um, it will take time to have clinical trials transform or trickle down from these elderly populations into um, the adult and the younger populations as well. Because obviously with this prioritization, the first set of clinical trials would be really targeted towards the major stakeholder, which is the elderly population in Gov, thereby leaving out um, these other uh, age groups as well in terms of treatment. And the last thing, um, also on a social level, and also similar to arguing that you exclude these younger people, um, on a social level, you also minoritize them in a way, um, assuming that you know anti-aging is perfect or we're closer to immortality, for, in, for instance. Um, so there's a lot of philosophical discussions here about ageism, about the oppression faced by younger populations, because now, potentially, the elder population can just concentrate their wealth, concentrate their um, power in society because you know they don't die off that is easily. Um, and in relation to that, there's also an, uh, a discussion about why it's important to accept death, to transition into different life periods instead of just trying to prolong your lifespan continuously, specific to these societies because you know the discussion is concentrated as well here in rapidly aging society. So those are the general approaches that um, opposition can run in this particular motion. Aside from the health aspect of the motion, for rapidly aging societies, one of the fears um, that people have, or at least that was the first thing that I thought when I saw like rapidly aging societies in the motion, the first thing that I thought of was what will happen to the economy and like society in general if, for example, the old people die and we don't have enough younger people to replace them in the workforce um, so, like, I imagine that the fear there is society and the economy would stagnate, stuff like that. Um, so, from that angle, what do you think um, government and opposition could talk about um, in, in that regard? So, like, let's let's think, like, what if we're at the stage where we're talking about extensions now and, like, someone says, oh, let's talk about the economy this time? Definitely. Um, so for government in terms of the economy, um, so I, I guess, sorry, to caveat, I think both benches can approach this in the lens of productivity or the, the utilitarian schools of the economy. Um, so for government, of course, you're going to caveat that a lot of the advancements will take time to flourish. So it might be entirely possible that you, uh, the, the older population start dying off before you start reaching these treatments. But once you do get these treatments, then you sort of stimulate the economy as well because now you have extra people or you have um, other individuals who are, who are capable of being productive, um, which probably might mean that you are able to create a lot of new jobs um, that previously these elderly individuals were not able to do. Or they, of course, they, they couldn't work, right? Because they were physically frail, et cetera. But now that you have these treatments or you're moving towards that, system where um, they're not dying off easily when they're older, um, then they can work. They can contribute to the economy in that regard. Um, they can probably go abroad, have these remittances, and participate in the economy, or even establish their own businesses because um, arguably there's a difference in their own perspective as well as older people um, when it comes to the kinds of products and services that they can offer into the market. Um, so yeah, that's generally how I would phrase it in terms of being productive in government's world. Um, so you can work more, essentially. In a nutshell, that's what the argument would be. Um, whereas in opposition, I would argue that there are reasons why, or uh, it's sort of like a socioeconomic level where there are reasons why um, older populations deserve to also stop working or deserve to not contribute to an economy as much as younger populations probably because they've already lived out most of their years working hard 
for the population. Um, so now they sort of like this is very consistent with our social welfare mechanisms of like having pensions, etc. So that's one angle of it. Like um, they don't really need to work in order to save the society for the older elderly population. But another punitive angle that opposition can run is sort of similar to what I said earlier, that it's sort of unfair as well to younger populations if you allow these dominant families, these elderly individuals with massive amounts of wealth and capital to continuously control society. So probably um, if you prevent these older people um, from, you know, removing themselves from the productive workforce or the productive sector of society, then they can twist policies, they can um, enact uh, changes in law or changes in society, which allows them to reap more benefits for their own families, for their own good, instead of the new needs of the younger populations. Um, So yeah, if you talk about, you know, the difference between Gen Z millennials as well as boomers, then there are a lot of ideological differences that you can invoke as well um, from opposition that would segment the, uh, cement the case that, well, it might be a bad idea if we let them work or if we uh, allow them to stay in society um, in these contexts. So yeah, those are my thoughts about it. Well, thank you for those wonderful arguments and also sort of rebuttals. I think you can repurpose a lot of that to rebut um, the other side if ever. Um, so I think we can move on to the next motion, which is about neglected tropical diseases this time, which typically affect the developing world, like soil-transmitted parasites, like malaria, dengue, other mosquito-borne diseases. Um, and according to the info slide that you provided us, they apparently receive little attention from the global public, um, which is weird to me at first because I, I said I've always been very aware of things like malaria and dengue. But then I feel like it's part of the reason why that is, is because I am living in the developing world. So the motion for the set is whether the West should heavily invest in research regarding neglected tropical diseases. And the first question that came to my mind is, why do we want to focus on the West in particular? Especially if um, when we're talking about the West, we don't usually think developing world. Um, So these diseases don't really affect the West. So what makes the West a special actor compared to any other actor in the debate? Okay, um, so one, uh, a lot of Western research institutions actually unfortunately guide the clinical and scientific guidelines around the world, even in the developing uh, community. So for example, our guidelines about how to control blood pressure is heavily based on the American Heart Association. Um, so that's one factor in it. Like if we want to raise awareness and raise Um, funding, for example, to these neglected tropical diseases or NTDs, then probably we can use or bank on the influence of Western institutions to come up with these guidelines and other efforts to try and eradicate these diseases. And secondly, also related to the capital of the West, um, they really have um, most of the advanced technologies and they also have the best research institutions like Oxford or In the medical field, you also have John Hopkins in the United States. So yeah, those are generally the reasons um, because of their power and their influence, even in treating diseases, they might be good actors to do this. Yeah. So, okay, since they have the influence and the power, like the capabilities to do this, my next question would be, what would be the interests of the West? Like, what are their typical motivations? And since the motion sort of presupposes that it has been neglected, like it's in the it's in the term, it's a neglected disease. What has caused this neglect for so long? Especially since if the the West is like the mover of the research, that the fact that they're neglected means that the West has just failed to talk about it. And what caused that? Okay. Um. So currently, there is sort of some other, it's not to say that there's not research or there's not like inquiry from the West about it, but it's just that their investments in these topics are very, very limited. Um, So the reason why they're neglected diseases is because internally, these countries don't really have a well-functioning research culture that allows them to adequately control these things. Um, At best, they can just um, kill off the bugs, but it's not really eradicating the underlying problems of poor sanitation and poverty. Um, But at the same time, like internationally, 
tech transfers are usually very hard. There's a lot of, uh, as we all know, there's a lot of political negotiations that come along with it, even when we talk about university collaboration that prevents a lot of these states um, to opt into these tech transfers. So that's primarily, those are the reasons why they're still heavily neglected. Um, there's not much access to these technologies. Um, and another reason, or probably a, a layer of context here is, the West actually, through the World Health Organization, has studies naman about these NTDs, but they're really mostly informational. Um, the information is like presented in 100 pages of reports, and they're not really presenting um, innovations in terms of cures. So we imagine this kind of heavy investment to look like the West establishing research centers of their own and also equipping Western institutions in their own borders with training. So this might look like um, John Hopkins having, I don't know, a specialization center in NTDs in their own university as opposed to just going to the country and collaborating there. And their motivation that the West would probably have here is, you know, um, they've benefited out of world history for far too long. They, therefore, they want to seem like they're the bastion of altruism, of innovation, and more or less, they want to help in eradicating these problems, like the good police they usually are. So yeah, that's um, the thought about the West in this debate. So based on that, government should probably argue that what changed with their motives and intentions is that in the past, they didn't really care. But this time, we sort of made them realize, oh, we, we have been benefiting from a system that favors us, you know, with colonialism and stuff. Um, so it seems to me um, that this shift would not be really unexpected. But how would you frame it in such a way that um, it allows them to defend the participation of the West as something that is not very problematic? Because I can't imagine an opposition team going here and saying that, uh, an opposition team debating this motion and saying that even if they do research um, these diseases, it's not really good because they're not as involved in the community that they're trying to help. And therefore, it would be better if the West just gives aid or something to these um, developing countries instead of doing the hullabaloo of investing in research themselves. So in terms of uh, that discussion, I think the first would really be helpful to explain how there's a rising awareness regarding um, the vulnerabilities of the developing world. And I do think that um, this is sort of a challenge to that frame of op in terms of explaining that, well, aid probably would be the best. Well, um, I think it's, uh, it's tying back to the resources that you have as a Western country, for example, and how it's sort of expected as well from the international health community for Western states to also um, give back, or as, as you said earlier, to recognize their own shortcomings. So this is very evident in the vaccine rollouts. Like there's a lot of backlash and there's a lot of negative optics when Western countries really try to seize the first rollouts of vaccines. So now there's an active recognition that, um, you know, they have to uh, give back reparations. And it's not just really aid. There has to be an active effort to constantly research and to constantly come up with these innovations when talking about neglected tropical diseases. But another thing that would aid in this frame would be to talk about an increasing preference for evidence-based medicine as well. Um, and the problem is um, aid, or if it's just like a financial uh, or a monetary donation from the West, you're not really sure to what kinds of research projects or programs this money would go into. And again, as we mentioned earlier, the West has like a lot of really good think tanks like John Hopkins and Oxford and Cambridge and all of those good institutions who have the, capa uh, the capacity to really look into these matters with an objective and an evidence-based manner that would be really helpful and beneficial when combating these diseases, especially now when um, there's an increasing interdependence as well um, with the kinds of information and the kinds of data gathering that you get based on different diseases. So your success really as a state um, would also depend on what information your neighboring countries or the international community would be able to gather 
uh, in terms of eradicating these diseases. And in terms of the quality of information, again, the quality of data and research, the West is really um, a powerful tool or an ally when it comes to these things. Okay, so I think those are great arguments actually for Gov. Um, the idea that since they have the best equipment or the best technology to research, they should be one. They should be the ones to lead the way. So I guess now we can move on to opposition. My first question would be, what would the opposition's alternative be? Because it's kind of difficult to defend not looking into or not researching these diseases. Um, but at the same time, I think that. Uh, it, it seems to be difficult to defend on opposition that we shouldn't look into these diseases at all. So I guess uh, like my initial reaction to this motion when I was thinking about opposition is what if opposition's counter policy is they should be given aid instead and they should research it on their own. But you responded to that by saying that, well, it's not that simple because even if you give them aid, they do not necessarily just get, um, they do not necessarily automatically get the expertise and the capacity to make good research out of it. So how would you respond that? Uh, how would you respond to that rebuttal? Like how would you give or build the counter policy on opposition then? Okay, that is a very interesting point of discussion. Um, the first thing I would want to mention as opposition would be like just to clarify that the West can still invest some amount um, into NTDs, um, but at the same time, they need to really focus on their own diseases of the West, like the diseases of the rich, like non-communicable diseases. Uh, we mentioned these earlier, like your diabetes, your hypertension. These are concentrated to the upper rungs or the upper crust of the world. And the West really need to focus on those. Um, but when it comes to rebutting um, the earlier discussion in terms of aid, um, I do think that opposition still has a lot of room to argue that. And in fact, um, one piece of context that would help this would be to talk about how developing countries, even if they don't have good enough research cultures to completely eradicate these diseases, they have something. And they usually have well-established tropical medicine institutes as well. So it's sort of also questionable. So it's a point of clash definitely in a debate. Um, as to whether the funding or whether the, the aid that you get from the West will actually be processed effectively. And of course, in opposition, there's a lot of reason to believe that, yes, it will be processed. You have a lot of good state-funded universities. You have a lot of research institutes for tropical medicine, like the one we have here in the Philippines. And what's good is these are the institutions that will be at the forefront of combating the NTDs and not some white um, university or white institution in government's world. So I think that's one way to approach it. Like there are good institutions as well, but they just need to be mobilized in terms of researching these things. So, so you mentioned that there are tech, uh, there are tropical research institutes. If the counter policy is let's just make it aid, it would be directed towards those research institutes um, that only these countries have. And like it, it gives them the ability to mobilize or improve upon these. So could you tell us a little bit more about how those tropical research institutes work? Because like if we're going to characterize an opposition that they need a little bit of help, like in what ways should they be helped first? Well, I guess um the the first aspect that they really need more resources into is in terms of the equipment that they have. So a lot of times, they rely on state funding and also uh, research grants. And it's very, very limited, um, which means that they cannot really research into, um, one, what the diseases and like what causes these diseases really, but two, what are effective treatment or eradication strategies that they have. So for example, in the Philippines, we don't have a good strategy for dengue and for um, this thing called Chagas disease. Um, we just, again, as I mentioned earlier, we just we just kill off the bugs, the mosquitoes, but we don't really have a good treatment once you do get infected. So that's one. You allow these research institu institutes to really find out effective treatments um, in the, uh, or potentially even have clinical trials. But second would be in terms of public support and public health as well, um, because it would also uh, take some time and take some money and resource in terms of drafting local policies and local guidelines 
that will also use up the technology and the equipment that we mentioned earlier. Um, so yeah, those are the like those are the veins or the uh, the vessels of funding that that's really needed in terms of these tropical institutes because um, again because of the structures in developing countries they don't really have much funding um, and they rely on the benevolence of their state as well which is also sometimes not really a good thing to do if you're in a in an impoverished country like here in the Philippines so yeah. So we talked about the benefits that you would get on government if you do this. Like, it's just a better research culture. They have better capacities, etc. We also talked about what opposition's counter model could look like. But the final question I wanted to ask here is, what benefits would be exclusive for opposition that would be important to highlight and emphasize in the debate itself? Okay, Um. so... Th- okay. I, I have one thing to offer under actually several things. Um, but yeah, so it's sort of again going back to sort of niche concepts as well, but it's uh it's really worth our introspection in this case. Um so we go back to the to the the government frame earlier that the West also has um a lot of unique problems of its own, particularly the diseases of the rich. Um, but if you look at it, these diseases like hypertension. They exist across the world, although in different prevalence rates because of massive social inequality. Um, so these technologies and these advancements in terms of hypertension also need to exist in developing countries because there's also some people there suffering um, under those diseases. So that's one, because if you heavily invest in this um, NTD, you obviously, of course, again, divert your resources somewhere, which means you have less resources in these um, diseases of the rich in terms of research. But secondly, the West also uniquely is able to um, come up with the greatest innovations when we talk about science. So we call this field frontier sciences. Um, So for example, this looks like applying artificial intelligence or even um, nanotechnology in medicine um, when coming up with Uh, treatment strategies, which is also um, a very good benchmark for developing states who have these NTDs because you expose them to far more alternatives when it comes to treatment. And otherwise, like um, in Gov's world, for example, where where they heavily invest, you also limit the capacity for them to invent new things and to come up with alternative ways to cure diseases. Um, so obviously, in this case, developing states will be sort of lagging in terms of innovation. But in terms of treatment, then um, you open them up to far more alternatives if you allow the, the rich countries to focus on what they were very good in doing in the past. Um, and one context to also solidify this um, would be, uh, and this is very interesting, I invite everyone to read on this, but we call this the epidemiologic shift which essentially states that um, countries and the diseases that plague countries change over time based on the level of development that they have. So if you look at history, like um, when everyone was a bit impoverished, even in Europe, you had the Black Black Death, you also had um, the bubonic plague. Um, Most of the time in poorer countries, uh, you have infectious diseases and you sort of shift into the lifestyle diseases as you get richer as a society. But what's unique about the Philippines and other um, developing countries is that it's sort of in the middle. So you have some people experiencing infections and some people also experiencing the diseases of the rich. Um, And yeah, for example, in the Philippines, uh, there's a lot of pneumonia, there's a lot of tuberculosis, but at the same time, there's a lot of diabetes and there's a lot of obesity as well. So yeah, if the West focuses suddenly heavily on just the infections and just the NTDs, then you also um, disadvantage the developments in the other diseases which also plague these same impoverished nations, which is obviously not the interest of general society in the general world. Um, Yeah, so of course, uh, you can also talk about how um, you would probably, and this is, sorry, this is more of like a harm um, that you will launch in opposition, but it's really more about the brain drain that also comes with Gov's policy. Because if you establish more research centers in the West and you have a premium for Western research, then obviously um, there's a current premium of bettering yourself off and becoming more rich as a doctor or as a scientist. So you're likely to leave your country first to train 
and um, that sort of drains your human resources as well in terms of healthcare and health systems. So yeah, those are like um, some of the uh, interesting things that I thought about when we talk about this motion. Yeah, so that'll be like, I really want to help out my country with malaria, but I don't want to stay here. It's a good thing that there's a research institute in the West that talks about malaria, so I, I can justify me leaving the country to, to just go there and, and do that study. So I, I think like um, it gives more people an excuse to, to leave, and that causes more brain drain, even if they might leave for like good reasons or um, for the reason that they want to help the country ostensibly. Um, but I think that the, we can move on now to the last motion, which is this house believes that governments should publicly condemn individuals who violate national health standards and protocols like quarantine rules, mandatory assured vaccinations, etc. So, okay, the, the main thing here is let's do some public condemnation. Let's make like a shame list or something like that. Um, the question now, uh, the first question that teams should ask is what would public condemnation actually look like? Like, is this something that comes along with punishments or is it different from the punishments and fines already placed upon people currently? Would this be done on top of those things or instead of those things? Okay, um, so I imagine this one to be um, probably done on top of the fines, not instead of the fines, um, because primarily because fines can be done privately. Um, it's all, of course, like debatable, like if you want to announce like, oh, someone got fined with this violation, etc. But the intent really is to have a specific call out, as you said, like a shameless of people who violate and what the specific violations were. Um, so, for example, if you're a normal civilian, this can happen in your local, barang uh, local barangay or local government radio. But if you're a national officer, then, of course, there's some national um, intervention there, like someone will really call you out if you are a head of state or if you're a mayor, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that's the general idea of the, uh, the policy. Yeah, uh, just, just calling out seems like um, something that we can do further. But another thing that I wanted to ask is, does this come with like, are we going to publicly condemn even private individuals? Or will it just be like a more general thing like, oh, this group of people we should condemn? because. I feel like there is a layer here that could say this is kind of anti-poor because a lot of them who violate quarantine rules tend to be from a certain demographic or tend to have a certain unifying characteristic. So when we're talking about publicly condemning them, are we talking about these demographics or just like particular individuals? Um, so the idea of public condemnation mainly pertains to private individuals specifically, um, especially with the current um trends and the current developments when you have um, state leaders who actively party despite their own country's quarantine rules, or this can also extend to private individuals who um, fake their quarantine stay, for example, which causes and contributes to the spread of infection, etc. Um, but yeah, I do agree. I think that it's going to be a fair clash for up to question the the classist nature of this policy. But of course, like Gov will have um, a lot of bullets behind their backs as well in terms of preempting or like mitigating these things in terms of being anti-poor. Um, so firstly, I think the, the wording is specific uh, in questioning whether governments should do this or not. Um, so in cases where it's going to be unfairly imposed or if it's true that it's going to disproportionately call out um, a certain demographic, then of course your governments are also heterogeneous in a regard. Um, so even if you have like conservative officials, there's going to be progressive experts as well who can try to fix these things. Um, but secondly, um, I think Gov also has the leeway to argue that uh, access and other infrastructure and policies that aid impoverished groups will still exist. Um, so it's sort of framing that the individuals who violate these national uh, standards usually more or less have an active choice to violate these things. That's why, um, like in the wording, it's like uh, assured mandatory vaccination. So there is an assurance of supply or access at the baseline. So I think that's one um, working framework that Gov can run with. And finally, I think 
you can also have the leeway to argue or frame that it's not going to be in the interest of your um, health departments to not uh, call out rich individuals or the powerful people in society as well because of potential backlash, because of uh, the fragility of data gathering, any risk of um, people hesitating to report the, their disease or their vaccination status, then that is damaging to the overall health department or health system. That's why they're probably going to be um, equal, more or less, in this policy. So given those things, what arguments would you run on government bench to prove the necessity of the public condemnations and also the effectivity of it? Because it's one thing to say that we have the right um, to do this or we need to do something. It's another thing altogether to prove that if we do this, it actually works. It actually helps us deal with like whatever issue we're talking about, whether it's a pandemic or something else. So I, I guess I, there, there's a two-for-one question. How would you prove necessity? How would you prove effectivity? Okay, um, so the first thing that you can talk about here in terms of necessity and effectivity would be to talk about the government's mandate when we talk about health crises. Because obviously, the, the, the debate will primarily exist in health crisis situations. So here you can talk about why public health is very important, right? So there's a lot of moral claims here about citizens being able to enjoy their life without disease and things like um, health being a fundamental right. Um, and there's a lot of ways to argue that um, people who actively violate these standards or people who actively sort of um, endanger another individual's health status in a society um, is sort of violating that right of you know, enjoying life without disease as well of other citizens. And there has to be a state action to prevent that. So that's sort of the moral framework that we can work with in terms of necessity. Um, again, I, I'm going to mention the example of um, Boris Johnson um, being very popular in the news lately for violating uh, their own standards in the United Kingdom. So it's going to be very, very detrimental if uh, this signaling mechanism exists, that these high-ranking officials get to violate these things when people on the ground suffer or they're more prone to suffering because of their own of the actions of these officials. So that's in terms of necessity. In terms of effectivity, I think um, the, the concept of deterrence can really uh, be hyped up here. The idea that you will be called out uh, and everyone in the Philippines will know that you sort of did something bad um, when you violate these standards. You, you cost uh, the spread of illness in your society. It's sort of a good uh, virtue signaling mechanism for people to not violate these things and be compliant or adherent to the policies of the state when it comes to health. Um, but secondarily, I also think that it presents the precedence that even private individuals or everyone essentially in society has the responsibility on the provision of healthcare, um, or even the idea of recovering from a pandemic. So it's a collective action problem. And there, while there is like institutional accountability here, there's also a degree of individual responsibility that you have to account for. So if you violate that responsibility, then there are social costs. So you're not necessarily going to jail, but you have to pay something, a social cost in that regard. All right. So I guess those arguments are about... Um, I guess that for that part of the discussion, it's about problem solution. Like the problem is we have a health crisis. This is something that we can do as a solution or at least part of the solution. But my next question is, other than that, what other effects can you imagine this policy bringing forward that government can capitalize on, whether it's for an extension or for like an extra level of analysis that you can bring up at PM or at WIP? Okay, um, so... Uh, these lines of analysis will also sort of pertain to the solution, actually, that you mentioned. And they're not radically different frames, but they mainly pertain to the efforts of collaboration between the public and the governmental sectors, as well as the medical community. So one thing that you can talk about in Gov um, would be about enforcement, right? So there is a necessity in health crises to really have good information gathering, um, especially in the communities. Um, but if you look at it, data gathering on the provincial level or on the local level um, is usually not very strict. 
um, because there's not much motivation to be strict or to be compliant with these. Like, uh, oh, it's just in a barangay or it's just in a city anyway. Why do we have to follow the orders of the president? Things like that. Um, but now, uniquely with this policy, they're mandated by national governments to have a stricter mechanism to track people or, oh, sorry, that sounds a bit ominous, but yeah, to improve contact tracing. Um, but at the same time, the, the reports that we receive from labs or um, how expedient the results from laboratory uh, sites are when you have RT-PCR or even antigen tests, it's massively increased with this policy because there's a threat of being called out for it. Um, but secondly, I also think uh, especially in decentralized states where um, you do have a national government, but you also have a lot of local governments, right? Uh, you can also talk about the consistency of public health policies. Um, so yeah, in a lot of these areas, it's very different and it's very difficult. Your quarantine rules are shorter in one city and it's longer city. Um, so that might be good for individual cases or small-scale cases of disease spread. On a national level, it might be detrimental because you have different sort of um, enforcement or enforceability of this policy. But now that you have this public condemnation, which is uh, supposedly national or widespread at least, um, then this marginally increases your likelihood to uh, follow your national protocols, to have more preventive measures, because again, it relies on being able to call out these individuals. So in general, you have better data on a national level, but you also have better consistency in terms of the health policies that you have or how people follow these because they will always be under the threat of being massively called out by your government. So yeah, those are um, other effects that you can explore in this motion as well. So on opposition, on the other hand, what would the feasible alternative be? Because it seems that in this motion in particular, there are many different policies that opposition can run. So what do you think would be the most strategic thing for opposition to do in this debate? Okay, um, so for me, this is just like a personal flavor. It again depends on the opposition team. But for me, I would just go with status quo. Um, the idea that you can file complaints when someone um, uh, reacts, uh, sorry, violates these standards at least you're sure right that the that the violation has already happened um you impose fines um etc and one of the reasons why i think this is strategic is now you just really have to show that um the new model is ineffective because as you said earlier it's mostly a problem ergo solution in government so now you just have to show that problem wrong solution uh, if you're in opposition team. Um, so yeah, that's how I would approach it. All right. So it's the strategy is relatively straightforward. But assuming that government side plays wrongs in their policy to ensure that, you know, again, like you said, there are many ways that government side can preempt um, arguments about classism, about it being anti-poor, etc. Assuming that government did that, how would opposition respond to it? Like, what added nuance would you add on opposition to show that these prongs are likely to fail or just to reestablish that those preemptions aren't really enough, that the issue of it being anti-poor or classist is still on the table, it's still part of the debate, and we can still win on it? So for opposition, um, under that discussion, uh, and I think this is a bit interesting for me as well, you can sort of question um, the response of people towards that condemnation because government would probably just assume that, well, this is a deterrent because people are scared of the ramifications of this penalty. But if you look at it, in a lot of states, the public is very, very polarized, especially when it comes to health crises um, and pandemics, which uh, seems to be common sense in our liberal bubbles. But again, it's really debatable as to how people perceive uh, these things, whether or not it's really good or bad. So there is going to be a change in optics inside Gov. You're going to have conservatives who will always see these as violations of your human rights because, you know, um, the pandemic isn't just because of individual actors, um, but at the same time for progressives as well. Because as you mentioned earlier, there are anti-poor sentiments and sometimes people violate things because of a number of reasons. Um, so the first question that OP will launch as a frame would be, so if Gov's goal is to deter, will it really deter? So Again, the, men, the reasons earlier would probably point to it not being a deterrence. But secondly, if it's deterrent, 
um, then is it really targeted, right? So even if you know some people would really be scared of it, it does not really address the reasons precisely why people violate. Um, so people violate because just because they want to do it, probably because they might have been misinformed, or probably they've been politicized or polarized in a certain political belief that influences their health behaviors. Um, but here, I think opposition just has to clinch that there really is an antagonistic effect. The idea that if you condemn, then people will be worse off and will fight each other more because of how they're socialized already. But in status quo, there, uh, you being able to reach consensus is far more likely because you're less punitive and you're less demanding as a government to your people and their rights. So yeah, those are how Pop would question the, the effectivity of the frame of code. So given that, what other arguments could you run in opposition, you think? Okay, um, so the first would be how um, if Gov is arguing that, uh, well, uh, this individualizes the responsibility, OP will really hype up how it skirts the burden of the state or the government um, because pandemics, again, usually is not just an, uh, an individual role or an individual problem. It's usually an institutional one. And you failing to contain pandemics is also part state failure and a broken healthcare system. Um, so it's far likely for you to diminish a lot of discussions of the institution itself, like things of uh, work conditions of frontliners or the compensation they receive, etc. because you're really individualizing um, the approach to pandemics and health crises. Uh, secondly, although this is sort of a bit bizarre, um, but there have been reports of labs that fake RT-PCR results as negative or people who fake their vaccination IDs. So obviously, government will crack down on these as well. But um, the unique harm is you're, uh, it's the extent, right? So you're marginally increasing the incentives of people, of desperate people who really want to go to Barakai to do these things. Then, of course, that's worse than what's happening in status quo already. And lastly, again, um, the, the public backlash that you're going to launch uh, against both progressives and conservatives um, which might probably increase vaccine hesitancy and increase hesitation to follow national health protocols uh, will also exist. So, yeah. Um, are there any other extensions that you can imagine opposition bringing up in the debate? Um, because, again, like the strategy here for opposition is quite straightforward. So I guess my question here is, is there anything like radical that would be different um, that would be like super different from the usual approach or like in terms of extensions, what can you do to build up on what was already mentioned before? Uh, the political ramification of this policy. Um, so you can argue that it increases the instability in your society. And that's a really bad idea if you want to contain a pandemic or an infection from spreading. Um, so uh, it's sort of like um, on the surface as of the moment, but if you allow public satisfaction and public ratings to call for certain politicians, especially heads of state, um, then you also call into question the effectivity of other health protocols and even non-health standards like uh, in working, in the economy, etc. Because now people are not trusting your head of state or your leader. So how are they going to follow other policies and other laws as well? So that's one in terms of instability. But another would be to talk about the long-term effects on the healthcare system um, because healthcare systems largely rely on the trust of publics as well. Um, and they, uh, you increase trust of the public to your health system if you're a compassionate uh, system, especially when it comes to reporting illness and rehab, um, even in non-pandemic uh, non situations. So for example, there's a concept of citizens withholding medical checkups if there's a negative consequence for them or if there's a punishment for them. So, for example, a lot of uh, impoverished people, unfortunately, do not pursue their physical exams because they think that it's just going to cost a lot of money. Uh, it's just going to mean bad things for them. They might get fired, etc. So in the long term, because you create a fear of punishment um, with, with health related decisions and behaviors, you also sort of increase the anxiety of people um, towards your public health systems as well, which is very detrimental, uh, again, with the data, with the, with the um, control of diseases in your society. So yeah, those are additional layers that you can build on why this is a very bad idea as well. I guess to conclude this post-debate analysis, I wanted to ask you, 
for advice that you would give to novice speakers, especially with regard to these kinds of motions? Like, if there was one thing that you want the listeners for this episode to remember moving forward, what would it be? Mm, for me, it would be to find reasons why debating is fun. So even if it's like uh, a science or a health motion, um, or when you're matter loading for these kinds of topics, try to look for things that uh, make you very interested in debate. So for me, I mainly debate in med school because um, I don't like uh, drowning myself in the jargon of medicine. Um, so I compete, I debate, etc. Read up, and yeah, especially when it talk, when it comes to uh, matter loading as well. Um, try to look for things that uh, you have fun with, like podcasts, uh, like this one, like debatable, um, and uh, reading up uh, material, even blog posts, as long as it's verified or there's useful information. And even in the sport itself, um, so debate is very, very competitive, um, admittedly. And there are a lot of negative feelings that we may have. But in the end, it's really the, the ability for you to, uh, or the exercise of speaking very good speeches, exercising your creativity during prep or with your partner is what makes it very fulfilling. So yeah, always be curious about these ideas. Um, always remember that it's an art style as well, in my opinion, and it's an exercise of that creativity and imagination. And I do think it makes debate less painful, even with the losses that we have. And it makes it extra special when, uh, when you, once you do uh, get those victories that you deserve. So yeah, that's it for me. Have fun in debating. Yeah, in the spirit of having fun, thank you for this interview. I actually had fun. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much.